When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, you often hear that old cliched expression, if there's one thing that's constant, it's change. You hear that all the time, right? And it sort of applies to aquarium keeping. If we look to nature, when we look at the way natural aquatic habitats arise, evolve, and function, I can't help but think about, you know, what factors actually force such processes. A recent podcast that we did, and you'll hear it I think tomorrow even, with our friend Ty Streitman, really brought this idea home. Uh, during our rather extensive conversation, uh, Ty mentioned to Johnny and I some of the observations he's made of the natural habitats of the Pantanal region of Brazil and the changes which impact the fishes which reside in them. And Ty explained that the fishes are remarkably resilient, not only during, not only enduring, but actually exploiting the seasonal changes and challenges that their habitats face throughout the year. Everything from changing water depths, rising and dropping oxygen levels, to full-scale physical reworking of the underwater topography, to changing food resources. It's a lot of stuff. It really got me thinking about parallels, similarities, and the very processes which create environmental changes in, that our fishes have to adapt to in our aquariums. I think about two things. First, how strong and adaptable fishes really are, and how intimately they are tied to their environment. These are familiar themes that we've touched on a lot here, Right. In nature, fishes will frequently migrate into and out of areas as the seasons change. Often this is because they're following food sources, shelter, and stability. Instinctive urges to feed, reproduce, and flee predation compel fishes to move from environment to environment. I believe that our fishes can benefit from us offering some disruption or changes to the environment from time to time. I believe that many of them are genetically or instinctively programmed, if you will, to endure and even to benefit from such environmental challenges or changes as part of their life cycle. Now, I realize this is somewhat contrarian to the long-accepted aquarium standard of stability in every way, and it's something I've had to revisit myself over the years. I mean, I've traditionally been the type of aquarist who adopts a sort of hands-off stance when it comes to messing with my tanks once they're set up and running. However, when we consider the way nature functions when she, you know, impacts aquatic ecosystems, there is something there, I think. In the wild, many fishes are subjected to these kinds of environmental fluctuations and disruptions to their physical environment on an almost semi-regular basis. They seem to do just fine. In fact, we've embraced some aspects of this type of environmental manipulation with fish breeding technique for many years. Examples? Uh, Lowering water temperatures to mimic, you know, rainstorm or whatever for Corydoras, or exhaling into a test tube of developing killifish eggs, annual killifish eggs, to put CO2 in the water to replicate the uh, a newly flooded stream or, or a newly flooded uh, uh, mud hole uh, to simulate hatching. Uh, I'd imagine that there's a lot of benefits to be realized by sort of deconstructing and replicating the processes of disruption and change which nature imparts to our fishes' environments. We could gain a lot from simply studying and considering how fishes react to the environmental disruptions and changes that they face. Think about the way fishes adapt to their behaviors and strategies to feed in the wild might give us some interesting insights that we can apply to our aquarium work. 
Now, as we all know, in nature, fishes spend a significant amount of time and energy searching for food. On the Amazonian floodplains, for example, you know, I was going back there, the flood cycle of the rivers into the Igarapes are the dominant seasonal factor, and fish communities are found to fluctuate greatly over the year. During the inundation, fishes migrate into flood, you know, floodplain forests to feed on insects, fruit, and seeds, among other things. Studies of these blackwater communities show that during these cycles, a greater diversity of fishes exists there. Many species were found to be specialized feeders. Fish, detritus, and insects were the most important food resources supporting the fish community in both high and low water seasons, but the proportions of fruits, invertebrates, and fish were reduced during the low water seasons. So are there some takeaways here for us fish geeks? Sure, I think so. Hmm. Well, what this means to us is that the fish sort of follow the food, right? And the seasonal availability, if you will, of some food sources actually dictates overall fish behavior. And for that matter, which species are found in the habitats of, you know, at various times of year, and of course, what is consumed? How would we replicate this seasonal change of food abundance and dietary composition in our aquariums? Perhaps we could simply alter the stuff we feed our fishes at different times of the year. In other words, feed a correspondingly more frequent, more intensive diet of, I don't know, say worms, fruit flies, or daphnia at one period of time that corresponds with the wet season, and then perhaps reducing the frequency, quantity, and variety of foods at other times. Perhaps even doing a several week-long hiatus or two, encouraging them to forage on the biocover and natural foods you've encouraged to accumulate within the aquarium. That's one change we could relatively easily replicate in the aquarium. I've done this a number of times over the years with tremendous success. It all revolves around how we set up our systems for this sort of, you know, this sort of operation. Now, other changes, or if you will, disruptions, which we could replicate in our closed systems, would be physically re rearranging or evolving the type and compositions of the materials in our tanks or adding additional botanical materials, leaves, and seed pods, of course, on top of existing materials. You could realistically replicate the physical changes which happen to natural habitats when water levels ebb and flow and new materials are imported as others are pushed out. Fishes will take advantage of these sorts of changes. They'll claim new territories while simultaneously exploiting new food sources as they become available. As Ty pointed out in our discussion, when changes happen to the physical environments in which fishes reside, established social hierarchies will be disrupted and changed up. Not only will inter existing interspecific social structure change, the very composition of the fish population itself will change, as newer specialized feeders move in to take advantage of conditions favorable to their existence. You can and should keep botanicals and leaves in the aquarium until they completely decompose. In the aquarium must lie to nature, the layer of decomposing leaves and botanical matter colonized by so many organisms ranging from bacteria to macroinvertebrates to insects is a prime spot for fishes. The most common fishes associated with leaf litter in the wild are species of kerosens, catfishes, and electric knife fishes, followed by our buddies, the cichlids, particularly Epistogramma, Crincicla, and Mesonata. Some species of Rivulus killies are also commonly associated with litter zones, even though they're primarily top-dwelling fishes. Leaf litter beds are so important to fishes as they become a refuge for fishes providing shelter and food from uh, associated invertebrates. How often do you need to replace your leaves? Well, it's another great question for which there's no rule involved. The reality is that you can simply add new leaves on a regular basis, so you'll always be making up for the ones that have decomposed. Some hobbyists do like to remove the decomposing leaves and prefer a more pristine look. It all boils down to aesthetics, really. I mean, there's nothing wrong with leaving them in until they completely break down. We've talked about this a million times here. And you could add them, build upon the layers that are already there, just like what happens in nature. Of course, besides leaves and seed pods, there's that other stuff we love. Branches, stems, twigs, and stuff like that. Those of us who obsessively study those images of wild tropical habitats can't help but note that many of the bodies of water, which we model our aquariums after, are replete with tree branches and stems. 
Since many of these habitats are ephemeral in nature, they're only filled up with water part of the year. The remainder of the time, they're essentially dry forest floors. And what accumulates on dry forest floors? Branches, stems, and other materials from trees and shrubs. So when the waters return, these formerly terrestrial materials become an integral part of the now aquatic environment. This is a really, really important thing to think of when we aquascape or contemplate, you know, uh, how we'll use botanical materials in these, you know, like the aforementioned stems and branches. They impact both the function and aesthetics of an aquarium, what we call functional aesthetics, of course. There's no real rhyme or reason as to what, you know, what stuff orients itself the way it does. I mean, branches fall off the trees. It's a process initiated by either rain or wind, and it just land wherever, which means that we as hobbyists would be perfectly okay just sort of tossing materials in and walking away. Now, we know this is actually aquascaping heresy. No serious scaper would ever do that, right? I'm not so, so sure why they wouldn't. I mean, what's wrong with sort of randomly scattering stems, twigs, and branches in your aquascape? It's a near-perfect replication of what happens in nature. Now, I realize that a glass or acrylic box of water is not nature, and there are things like scale and ratio and all the gobbledygook that hardcore, you know, hardcore scaping snobs will hit you over the head with, but nature really doesn't give a fuck about some competition aquascaper's rules. And nature's pretty damn inspiring, right? There's a beauty of, in the brutal, re, brutal reality of this randomness. I mean, sure, the position of stones in... Iwagumi is beautiful, but it's hardly what I'd describe as natural. Nature is, well, natural. <laughs> Which begs the question, who really cares? Do what you like. However, I think that we can do a lot worse than literally dropping materials into our tanks, taking into account their size, of course. Look to nature and be bold. In the world of botanical-style aquariums, the idea of leaving the substrate and leaf litter, you know, botanical bed material intact as you remodel the aquarium isn't exactly a crazy one. And conceptually, it sort of replicates what occurs in nature, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. And think about this just for a second. As we almost constantly discuss, habitats like flooded forests, meadows, vernal pools, igarape, and swollen streams tend to encompass terrestrial habitats or go through phases where they're terrestrial habitats for a good part of the year. In these wild habitats, the leaves, branches, and soil remain in place, or they're added to by dynamic seasonal processes. For the most part, the soil, the branches, and a fair amount of the more durable seed pods and such remain during both phases. The formerly terrestrial you know, physical environment is now transformed into this earthy, twisted, incredibly rich you know, aquatic habitat, which fishes have evolved to live in and utilize for food in complex protected spawning areas. All of the botanical material, shrubs, grasses, fallen, fallen leaves, branches, seed pods, and stuff is suddenly submerged, and currents redistribute the leaves and seed pods and branches into little pockets and stands, affecting the now underwater topography of the landscape. Leaves, you know, begin to accumulate, detritus settles, soils dissolve their chemical constituents into the water, enriching it. Fungi and microorganisms begin to feed and break down the materials. You know the drill. Biofilms form, you know, crustaceans multiply. New populations of fishes are able to find new food sources, new hiding places, new areas to spawn. Life just flourishes. So, when you remove much of the hardscape plants or whatever from your aquarium as you evolve it into something else, yet leave the substrate, some of the hardscape leaves, etc. intact, you're essentially mimicking this process in a more realistic way. Sure, a makeover in an aquarium can be a seriously disruptive event. On the other hand, if you take the mindset that this is a transformation of sorts and act accordingly, it becomes more of an evolutionary process. It need not be viewed as some sort of huge catastrophic process in the lifetime of the aquarium. This is something I've done for many years, like a lot of you have, and not only it makes your life a little bit easier, it can create some pretty good outcomes for the fishes that we keep. No one said the hobby is easy, but it's not difficult either. 
as long as you have a basic understanding of the environmental processes and conditions within your aquarium, and the idea of leaving essential biological components of your aquarium more or less intact for an indefinite period of time is really compelling. Of course, an aquarium which utilizes botanicals as a good part of its hardscape follows a set of phases too. And I found that once a botanical style aquarium, blackwater or brackish or whatever, has hit that sort of stable mode, it's just that, it's stable. You won't see wildly fluctuating fluctuating pH levels, nitrates, phosphates, etc. To a certain degree, the aquarium's achieved a sort of biological equilibrium. Now, one thing that's unique about the botanical style approach is that we tend to accept the idea of decomposing materials accumulating in our system. We understand that they act to a certain extent as fuel for the micro and macrofauna which reside in the aquarium. The idea of leaving this material in place over the long term is a crucial component of this approach, in my opinion. As we've discussed repeatedly, just like in nature, they'll also form the basis of a complex food chain, which includes the bacterial biofilms, the fungi, and all those little crustaceans. Each one of these life forms supporting, to some extent, those above, including our fishes. I've long believed that if you decide to let the botanicals remain in your aquarium to break down, as we just talked about a minute ago, and decompose completely, you shouldn't suddenly change course by removing all the material all at once, particularly if you're going to do a new version of an existing aquarium. Why is this? Well, I think that my theory is steeped in the mindset that you've created a little ecosystem, and if you start removing a significant source of somebody's food, or for that matter, their home, there's bound to be a net loss of biosha. And this could lead to disruption of the very biological processes that we aim to foster. Okay, it's a theory, but I think I might be onto something. Maybe? So like, again, here's my theory in more detail. Simply look at the botanical style aquarium, like any aquarium, as a little microcosm with processes and life forms dependent on each other for food and other aspects of their existence. And I really believe that the environment of this type of aquarium, because it relies on botanical materials is more significantly influenced by the amount and composition of said materials to operate successfully over time, just like in natural aquatic ecosystems. The processes of change and disruption which occur in natural aquatic habitats and in our aquariums are important on so many levels. They encourage ecological diversity, create new niches, and revitalize the biome. Changes can be viewed as frightening, damaging events, or we can consider them a necessary process which contributes to the very survival of aquatic ecosystems. Think about that the next time you hesitate to remove or replace that piece of driftwood or toss some fresh leaves on top of your existing bed of botanicals or whatever. Stay thoughtful, stay bold, stay creative, stay studious, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Bellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.